I'm Larry Morris. I'm one of the writer-directors on the Scooby-Doo Project. I'm Casper Kelly, another one of the writer-directors on the Scooby-Doo Project, and you're listening to... A podcast named Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah! gang, and welcome to another episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo, the show that attempts to unravel 50 years of mysteries, meddling kids, and masked villains. My name is Mike Josick, and I'll be your guide through all things ghostly and groovy as I investigate every angle of every mystery and beyond. So grab yourself some Scooby snacks, fire up the mystery machine, and let's start the show. Hey guys, look! You can see the whole press room from up here. Where are you, blue scarab, you old meanie you? Good idea, Scrappy. Maybe we can spot him before he spots us. Welcome to episode 32 of a podcast named Scooby-Doo. I've got another great show lined up for you all. If you follow the social media, you probably know who is coming up shortly. Uh, and if you don't follow the social media, shame on you. But uh, my next guest, the next guest on the show is a writer best known for his work in comics and television. He's worked in both live action and animation and you've probably seen his work. He's written for most of the, most if not all, of the publishers out there. Uh, probably best known for his run on Blackhawk for DC with artist Dan Spiegel. Uh, remember that name, you'll be hearing it again uh, during the conversation. And he also was a uh, writer and collaborator with Sergio Aragones on the popular humor barbarian mendicant comic book uh, grew the Wanderer. Now within the franchise of Scooby-Doo, he's probably best known for the comic books that he wrote uh, way back when, uh, the original like Gold Key and uh, Marvel Comics issues, and he adapted one of those stories, The Blue Scarab, for the first episode of the Scooby-Doo Scrappy-Doo show, which introduced Scrappy to the world. And that writer, if you haven't picked up on it already, is uh, the one and only Mark Evanier. Now Mark's been on my list of people to talk to pretty much since the beginning, partially because of a series of posts he put on his blog, uh, News From Me, and he discussed the history of getting Scrappy-Doo out into the world. I think it was like five or six parts, and uh, after reading that I was like, oh man, gotta get Mark on the show. But I also knew that Mark is kind of a pop culture historian. I mean, he's he's brushed shoulders with so many people. He's worked on so many different things and his recall is amazing. And combine that with the fact that he's a wonderful storyteller and he's an invaluable addition to the oral history uh, that I'm kind of trying to put together here. He was very generous with his time. I, I think I've alluded again, either on the social media or uh, possibly in the last episode, this is a robust conversation. This particular episode, uh, part one, is going to be one of my longer episodes 
and I think there's going to be two more parts roughly of the same length. So this is not a quick, you know, take the dog for a walk, listen to kind of podcast. This is this is the sort of one that you want to settle into your favorite easy chair with a cup of tea, or maybe you've got a long commute and just kind of let Mark's stories fill your ears and entertain you. I ask a handful of questions. Most of this is Mark talking. Um, So much information, so many good stories. Uh, It's part of the reason this conversation actually took place originally, I think in like June of 2019. And I kind of sat on it because I knew that it was going to take multiple parts. And I kind of wanted to get like the Casper Kelly, Larry Morris interview in there and some other stuff that did and didn't happen but it just it was kind of a bit of a circuitous road leading to actually getting this up i also knew it was going to be a tremendous amount of work just doing the editing and uh, and posting it so for those of you who knew uh, a while ago that this was coming thank you for your patience and uh, for those of you who this is totally brand new here you go i am thrilled to present my conversation with writer and pop culture historian mark evanier enjoy we'll see you on the other side so i'm sitting here talking to mark evanier who was uh, actually the writer of the pilot of uh, the scooby-doo scrappy-doo show introducing scrappy to the world for good or ill depending on where you sit on that fence and uh, he also was the writer of the Scooby-Doo comic book for Gold Key and Marvel Comics in the mid to late 70s, early to late 70s, I guess. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, sir. So what I usually do uh, with most of my guests is I start with just asking kind of what your first contact with Scooby-Doo was. Were you a, were you a Saturday morning kid? Did you catch the show on TV? I used to watch everything on Saturday morning at least a few times and then pick out what I wanted to watch regularly. Uh, you know, the nice thing about Saturday morning back then is you knew everything ran four times. So it, uh, you know, you'd, you'd watch NBC one week and CBS another week. And then if you might end up liking the CBS show, you could always pick up the episodes you miss on the end of the run. Uh, so I'd watch everything and I watched Scooby-Doo when it first came on and I wasn't that fond of it. I have an observation over the years that nobody really likes Scooby-Doo if they only see a couple of them. You have to watch a few to get, kind of get in sync with the show and its sense of humor and its attitude and the characters. I don't think it's possible to, th- to watch one episode and really appreciate it. So it's somewhat like David Simon's The Wire is what you're saying. <laughs> um, maybe. I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen that either. Oh, okay. So I, didn't, I watched it, I watched it and, and didn't, didn't particularly care for it. I didn't dislike it. It just didn't seem to me to be uh, a great show. I, I kind of had something funnier in my mind for a Hanna-Barbera. I didn't expect Hanna-Barbera to do a show that fell kind of halfway between an adventure show and a broad comedy show. And um, it just didn't seem natural to me or something of the sort. Uh, So I didn't really watch it much. And then a couple years later, I was writing for Gold Key Comics. The editor there was a man named Chase Craig. And uh, I was writing Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and Porky Pig and some of the Disney books and things like that. And I I was working for them at a very fortunate time for me in that a lot of their older writers were 
retiring or cutting back or in one or two cases dying. So every time I'd walk into the office, Chase would say, hey, you want to write some Woody Woodpeckers? Hey, you want to write some Roadrunners? I think whatever it was. So I kind of had my pick of any characters in the office. And one day I walked in and he said, hey, you want to write some Scooby-Doo stories? And I said, oh, I'm not that fond of Scooby-Doo. I haven't seen that many of them. And he said, well, Dan Spiegel is drawing the comic now. And I lit up because Dan Spiegel, who I had not met at that time, was one of my favorite comic book artists of all time. Um, one of the guys who drew comics I vividly recall reading as a kid. And I thought he was a great, very underrated, very good artist in terms of telling a story and being dynamic. And Dan had been, you know, one of the guys who drew adventure type comics for Western publishing, Gold Key. And he, they didn't have that many at the moment. A lot of them had been canceled. Uh, and they were giving him Scooby-Doo because they needed someone to draw it. And Dan needed work. It was not the ideal match of, of material and artist at first. But Dan did a couple with different writers, and they kind of, he was kind of catching on a little bit. He just didn't usually do stuff that broad and that simple. And Chase somehow thought we'd connect. So I thought, oh, I'd love to write a couple comics drawn by Dan Spiegel. So I wrote a story, and they sent it to Dan, and he drew it. And I happened to be in the office the day it uh, came back. I was a freelancer. I would go to the office once a week to drop off scripts. And I happened to be there, and they opened up the package, and Chase was just delighted. He went, oh, Dan's got it. He suddenly has figured Scooby-Doo out. And there, and there had been a big jump in, the, in the, his work. His work was never poor, but there was something kind of missing in the first few he did. And he suddenly, it, it suddenly popped up. So Chase said, I want you to write all the Scooby-Doo scripts from now on. Uh, you and Dan seem to have a, a nice connection. Uh, and... Uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you're good luck for him. And I said, fine. And I wrote all the scripts uh, that Gold Key published after that of Scooby-Doo, except for there was one script that was, had previously been done by another writer that was sitting on the shelf. And when they started figuring they were going to lose the rights to, to Scooby-Doo, they had to use it up. So there's one story that I didn't write in the remainder of the run. But then by chance, between the time I wrote the first one and the second one, uh, I met Dan. There was a comic book shop in Long Beach, California, uh, called uh, Richard, Stott, Richard Kyle's Graphic Story World. They had a little reception for local people who did comics. And Dan, who lived in Carpinteria, which is quite a drive, had brought his wife Marie down. They drove down to it. And I was there, and we met and just hit it off as people and became very good friends. And uh, thereafter, uh, he just got better and better at it, and I got more inspired at it because, you know, usually I, I hadn't had contact with the artists who drew my scripts. I hadn't met the guy who was drawing Bugs Bunny comics. Chase handed him my scripts. I hadn't met the guy drawing Woody Woodpecker and so on. But Dan and I became friends, and we, he would call me occasionally and say, I don't get what you want to do here on page eight. Can you explain it to me? Uh, and I never had that experience before. I was fairly new to comics at that point. So I just loved working with the guy. And uh, I did it until Gold Key gave up the rights and Charlton snatched them up. And I went on to other things and Dan went on to other things. 
looking back at some of those older issues, uh, I agree with you. Like I, I see the difference uh, in the quality of Dan's work, and there did seem to be you guys were clicking really well. It was a really interesting book. It, it was similar to the show, but it was it was slightly different from the show, and the the mix of Dan's cartoony like on model renditions of the gang, but then he would do more highly detailed like supporting characters and they're they're fun books i wish the stuff that was being published now was of like half the quality <laughs> as what you guys were doing back in the 70s I, I i i haven't seen the stuff being done now uh we didn't follow the show that exactly back then gold key western publishing didn't really care if they matched the tv show exactly because they said this has to work as a comic book yeah uh, the best example I can give you that is they did, you know, the Donald Duck comic books. And pretty clearly, the Donald Duck that Carl Barks was drawing all those years and writing in those comics was not exactly the same Donald Duck as the cartoons. I, I certainly didn't imagine when I read a Donald Duck story in a Dell or Gold Key comic, that character sounding like the Clarence Nash voice in the cartoons for the duck. So they would tend to deviate a bit, and you know the Roadrunner and the Roadrunner comp book. The Roadrunner not, Road not only spoke; he spoke in rhyme. So Chase had impressed upon me, you know, ch make change the thing as necessary if you think it'll make it work. So, for example, I gave Scooby's a lot of thought balloons. Yeah, uh, he he commented on things, and 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 probably out of character because I wasn't watching the show that much. Uh, I only hadn't seen that many of the shows. I I actually was kind of working off the previous comic books more than off the show. And I'm not sure why I didn't watch the show that much. But I, when I did watch it, I didn't feel like I was doing quite the same characters. You know, I mean, it just it felt a little distant. I said, that's, oh, that's their Scooby-Doo. I'm doing something for the comic. I'm doing the comic book Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Later, when we when we did the, the, the comics you refer to as being done, they were published by Marvel. Those were edited out of the Hanna-Barbera studio. Literally, it was Hanna-Barbera would edit those comic books. Well, people at Hanna-Barbera, including myself, eventually, would edit those comic books. And since we were producing them in the studio, and the idea was to try to get back towards the, um, the TV show, to tie, it in, tie it her to the TV show, I stopped having Scooby have thought balloons. And I made him a little dumber, a little more craven. Uh, and that and those issues, I was trying to match the TV show closer. I wasn't really, since my editor at Gold Key didn't care, I didn't care before. I went back and reread the the Blue Scarab issue in preparation for this because, of course, that was your first episode for the TV series, and it is it is different as far as like it doesn't follow the same flow or or format as the show. But I, at no point do I feel like you're kind of betraying, you know, what the characters sort of are at their core. Like, they're doing different things. And it, like you said, it's the comic book version of the gang, but it still felt like Scooby-Doo. It didn't feel like somebody who just came in and was like, oh, it's five kids and a dog and whatever. They're going to do this thing. Yeah, well, I, I hope that's the case. The problem you have in, in differentiating a comic book from a TV show is that in the TV show, an awful lot of the fun, and I think one of the, some of the gold in the TV shows was all those scenes of, Shaggy and Scooby running madly around the house or madly around the amusement park or wherever they were and getting into trouble. And there was a lot of sight gags and visual gags and, and motion gags. Well, in the comic book, especially if you've got a short, you know, a limitation on pages, you can't do a lot of visual motion gags. You can't, uh, 
you have you have to do ver more verbal gags, and uh, and of course you've got a plot to convey. And the Scooby Doo, you know, episode. The thing that I think people really wanted was to be able to read a story or watch a show and kind of guess who was going to be the villain and who was going to unmask it. Where's the clue? And I think the most satisfying ones were ones where when the, you know, the villain was unmasked or the plot was unmasked at the end, you went, of course, that, that makes perfect sense from based on the clues and based on the deductions and based on the suspects and such. So it's hard to put like three or four different suspects into a 12-page comic book story. Yeah. You know, it, it just, it's tough to service them. So you're, you're always compressing. So I think the story, I think the, the, the comic books just by nature had to be a little more verbal and less prone to chase scenes. But I also, I felt that the, the TV show, when you watch it once a week, they can get by with a more repetitive story structure. I mean, they have, a lot of the shows have the same rhythm. Yeah. Uh, the characters go someplace and then somebody is scared by a ghost or a monster or something like that. And then, you know, the kids are going to get involved and they do some false leads and they make meet three suspects. And then at some point they uncover the crime and Scooby and Shaggy run madly around someplace. And through not heroism so much as, as dumb panic luck, they, you know, crash into the villain or, or lock him in some place or whatever, and then there's the unveiling, and then you have the scene where Fred explains what happened. Now, that's a, not a bad story structure, but I don't think, you know, if you, especially if you've got a couple with two stories in it, you can't do the same structure in both stories. And I thought, I didn't feel that was satisfying. So we tried to vary the story structure a little bit. Around the same time, I was doing a Laugh Olympics comic book under the same auspices. That was the first one that they gave me to edit as well as write. And I put a plot in that you know, the, the, the Laugh Olympics TV show, which I assume any Scooby-Doo fan has seen at some point, pretty much was linear. It just kept, here's the race, and we're going here, we're going here, we're going here, and this guy cheats, and this guy does this, and, and finally, you know, here's who crosses the finish line. And I tried to make the Laugh Olympics comic book, each episode about some story you know, the first issue I think was, you know, Augie Doggy and Doggy Daddy trying, Doggy Daddy tried to prove him, his courage to his son. And I forget, the, I forget the second, but there was, there was another story going on apart from the race. And uh, I think that was appropriate for the comic book. It might not have been appropriate for the TV show. I did not work on the Laugh Olympics TV show. I will say, I mean, you commented on the, the lack of being able to do like the chase scenes and the real visual gags, like on the show in the comic book. But I, I do think that Dan really did pull off a real kinetic sense of uh, motion with like Scooby and Shaggy when they were in a, in a sense of panic. Yeah, I, was, I hadn't actually looked at the comic books in a really long time and going back to them was, was actually kind of a treat. What was, your, what was your first issue? When did you first start? Because they were d adapting episodes for a long time. Well, they adapted episodes because Chase Craig knew that, that there, were, there were people at the studio at various times so you got to remember here that West, Chase Craig was working for a company called Western Publishing Company. Western Publishing Company did their comic books under the Gold Key imprint, and later they did some of them under the Whitman imprint. Right. They had previously, Western had done the Dell comics, and is a whole circuitous thing about how Dell parted company with Western, and Dell began doing their own comic books. But in the 60s, Dell was doing their comics, and Western was doing the Gold Key comics, 
and they had licensed the right from Hanna-Barbera not only to do Scooby-Doo comic books, but Scooby-Doo coloring books and Scooby-Doo puzzle books and Scooby-Doo activity books and Scooby a certain amount of Scooby-Doo merchandise. And the comic book, as one of those um, you know, pieces of merchandise, was technically subject to Hanna-Barbera approval. Western Publishing's offices were located on Hollywood Boulevard directly across the street from the Chinese Theater, the famous Roman's Chinese Theater. Uh, literally, if you looked out Chase's window, office window, you were looking down at the courtyard of Groman's Chinese Theater. And, and Hanna-Barbera was located at 3400 Coenga Boulevard. Uh, anybody who cares about this stuff can go and, you know, go to Google Maps and see that essentially the offices were about two miles apart. And there were guys who worked at Hanna-Barbera who would come down to Western and pick up moonlighting work. For, for the Gold Key comic Some of the same writers worked on both. Some of the same artists worked on both. And so there was a, there was a, a symbiosis there, and Chase had to occasionally take the comic book material to the studio, and someone would approve it and say, yeah, you're drawing the characters right or you're not drawing the characters right. And whenever they were adapting episodes, that usually meant that Chase thought the guy at the studio was being too fussy. There were times when the guy at the studio would just go, ah, just do it. You don't need to show it to us. And there were times when someone there, because the control passed from different you know, executives, different executives, some guy wanted to look over every page and criticize it. So it was just easier to adapt an episode script, and then they couldn't really very much complain about the script in the comic book because it was, it was an episode that had aired on the show. And then they would get away from that whenever they thought, the people at the studio didn't care that much. <laughs> uh, about the same time I was doing Scooby-Doo, I did the first issue of a comic called The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan. And this was a thing, it was, a, you know, it was another show kind of in the Scooby-Doo vein that Hanna-Barber produced. And it had to be produced, that first issue had to be produced at breakneck speed. Usually we were way ahead of everything. But Chan Clan was added to the schedule. All of a sudden it was like, we got to get an issue done in like two weeks. And I happened to walk into the office that day, and Chase said, yo, you're my fastest writer. You're going to write this for me. And he gave me a storyboard to an actual episode. And he explained to me, I'm having you adapt an episode because I don't want to deal with the approval process with the studio. If I tell them I'm adapting an episode, they won't bother reading the comic book. They just assume everything is right. So I adapted a storyboard uh, that I think was written by Norman Maurer. And uh, a man named Warren Tufts drew it. Warren Tufts drew a few issues of the Scooby-Doo comic book before Dan Spiegel did it. And Warren Tufts was one of the great comic artists who ever lived, uh, a lovely, wonderful man who died way too young. So we had um, this you know, mandate. We had to deal with the studio approvals. Once we were doing the comic books at, at uh, Hanna-Barbera in the studio, nobody at the studio approved them. The people in charge of approving them were us. So we did. We could do whatever we wanted, but anyway, I'm, I'm veering away from your question here. <laughs> but uh, the the thing I want to emphasize here before we get off the subject of the comic books is how wonderful I thought Dan Spiegel was, not just on that comic book, but he and I did a lot of other comic books together over the years. We did Black Hawk for years for DC. Yes. We did a book for Eclipse called Crossfire, which is maybe my favorite thing I ever wrote in comics, and it's just a joy to write something and know it's going to the, an artist who's going to serve it properly and give you back 
something so professional and so brilliantly illustrated. A guy who can draw anything. And I just adored him and, uh, and got spoiled working with him sometimes because he would, uh, he was so fast and so good. And I never looked at a page and went, Oh, why did he do that? He was always right on target with everything. And if people really listening to this podcast enjoy the Scooby Doo comic books we did, Dan is like 90% of the reason because, uh, uh, you know, he, he, I, you know, sometimes like I write a lot of, TV, a lot of live action TV, and I would write something, and I'd sit here writing, and I go, wait a minute, Bob Newhart's going to say these lines. I, I got to rewrite this. This isn't good enough for Bob Newhart. And I, but then, you know, it's, it's the same thing. Oh, Dan Spiegel's going to draw this. I've got to come up with a better idea than this <laughs> for Dan Spiegel. It's the same. It's the same thing because you know that you're the weakest link in this in the project. You know, if if if, you know, if the if the if the TV show wasn't funny, it probably wasn't because of because of Bob Newhart. It was because of the script. And the same thing, if the conflict doesn't work, it isn't the artist's fault if Dan's drawing it. So that's I wanted to say that about Dan. And rightfully so. <laughs> Dan was a wonderful artist. Yes, I actually remember my last my last contact with Dan's artwork was his Young Indiana Jones books, which uh, which were kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, sorry, which uh, which issue did you start, or what story did you start on with the... Uh... Uh, the first story, I, first story I wrote was called Scream Star. Um, I don't remember which issue. I think it's issue 21, maybe, around there. Okay. I remember you know, I wrote the first story, and then there was a gap, because the book was way ahead of schedule. We did that, you know, months before it had to go to the printer, and then I did the first story, and then they didn't need another script for me because Dan was drawing one of the Disney movie adaptation comic books, which took a while. And those are some magnificent work. I never worked on any of those. I wish I could have because they were, they were, he would just do amazing things. The artistry. There's a, they did a couple of the love bug. They did uh, adaptation of the love bug and uh, the Herbie rides again movie. And if you look at those comic books, Dan drew the, the Volkswagen. A Volkswagen is a very dull thing to draw. It's a very dull car. He drew it, that Volkswagen, every possible angle upshot downshot sideways left side right side he made it look like it was moving and he did that all from memory remembering what volkswagens he'd seen on the street lot. <laughs> he didn't have photos of volkswagens in front of him to do that he just did it because he's a, an amazing artist and and uh I, I miss him a lot since he passed away a few years ago anyway so that's um that's you know one of the joys there and he loved he loved drawing scooby so, anyway, ask another question. I'm sorry, I'm filibustering. No, here. that's fine. That's fine. Um, so, what was the process kind of like? You said that you were way ahead on the on the Scooby comic. How long did it take to kind of get a script out for Dan? How long did it, did it take for Dan to turn around a, an issue? I said, well, you know, Chase would say to me, "I need a you know a 12 page Scooby Doo or a 13 page Scooby Doo," and I would generally write them in one night or two tops. You know, I would just take a walk think of a story, go home and write it, hand it in, and Chase would do what was usually minimal editing. Once in a while, he said, you know, he'd say, Mark, I don't understand what's happening here. You, you, there's too many words on this page. Let's cut them down or something. He would, he would, you know, he was a very good editor. A very, I, I learned, people who listen to this may know that I apprenticed with the great Jack Kirby, yeah. uh, you know, one of the greatest comic artists who ever lived, if not the greatest. And you know, they and they say to me, you know, you must have learned a lot working from Jack. And I, uh, 
you know, learn a lot from Jack working with him. And I say, yes, I also learned an awful lot working with Chase Craig, who by coincidence was born, also born on August 28th. Both, both men born on August 28th. <laughs> and uh, not the same year, though. But Chase was kind of a, I hate the term mentor, but he was a guy who just influenced me a lot. And I learned a lot from him. He's a very good editor. So I'd hand him the script, and then he'd send it to Dan, and Dan would, at that time, pencil the stories out first. Later on, I'll, I'll tell you when we get to the, the Marvel ones, how we worked then. But Dan would pencil the whole story out in three hours, just roughly. Not, not tight art, because he was going to ink it himself. So he knew, Dan was the kind of guy who drew basically with a brush and a pen. He didn't really draw with a pencil that much. The pencil was to lay out where things were going to go. And he'd figure out where the characters went on the page, and he'd draw... You know, he might spend 15 minutes on a page just roughing. And let's put that there. No, let's put that there. Let's put him on the left. Put him on the left. No, let's put her on the right, you know. And then he'd send it in and it would go to the letterer. The letterer of all the stories we did for, for Gold Key was Bill Spicer. And then the lettered pages would go back to Dan and he would, uh, and this is unusual. Very few artists ever do this. He would draw standing up at an easel. Dan lived in this little it's like a, it looked like a gardening. He lived in, a, in Carpinteria, and he had avocados on his property. He, had, he basically lived on an avocado farm that he owned. And his other source of income was that every, you know, couple of weeks, trucks would come by and harvest the avocados and give him money for them. And he would work, work standing up in this thing that looked like a, a gardening shack, gardener's shack. But it was a little nice little studio, and he had an easel, and he would pencil sitting down at his drawing table and he'd ink standing up and, and this enabled him to keep getting back from the page, you know, and, and getting far away from it and looking at how the black areas balanced, you know, so you could see the whole page in one, in one shot in your head. And he would ink all the stuff in. He had a bunch of pens and brushes and he worked very fast and he would probably finish three pages a day, minimum, maybe four. So a 12-page story would take him three or four days and send it off. And by that point, hopefully, Chase would have coordinated to have another script already to him for something, some other job, not, not necessarily another Scooby-Doo, because he did other things for them. He did Korak, and he did uh, a thing called, uh, oh, I don't remember all the books he did for them. Quite a few things. And he did some of those movie adaptations and such. He did the Harlem Globetrotters comic for a while for them. So then he'd send it in. And they'd proofread it in the Western offices, and they'd send it off to New York, where Western had another office that handled the production, some production, and they'd have somebody back their color. We never had anything to do with the coloring at all. And we'd uh, on to the next issue. You mentioned earlier the thought balloons that you utilized with Scooby. Yeah. And when I first kind of encountered it going back and, and reading these again, I was like, oh, I don't remember this, and I wasn't sure how it was going to feel. Uh, but I actually liked them. I actually liked... It, they weren't overdone, and they were just kind of a... Again, they felt in character, and it wasn't like Scooby was talking out loud, so it I don't know, for some reason it had an internal logic that I was okay with. Was the purpose of using the thought balloons for Scooby just because uh, so much of him was like visual on the TV series and you needed to utilize them differently in the comic book? Y yes, and also, you know, you've got... And those stories are terribly cramped. I would have much liked, preferred it if we'd done book-length stories. 
but they wanted two stories in an issue. Right. So, you know, and so, so you're always compressing. The, the number one thing I would do uh, in writing these stories is keep compressing. I keep going, I got to get, to, you know, this can't be four pages. I got to make it in. I got to do this. I got to achieve this in two. And the thought balloons would help convey information sometimes. And also, you know, um, there's a, you want to keep Scooby alive. He's the star of the show. And if he doesn't talk, if he has no voice in the thing, he kind of doesn't exist in the comic book as much. And the TV show, you can hear him make his, you know, his Don Messick noises all the time. And you can watch him running like crazy for, for, for 30 seconds or a minute or whatever it is. But we don't have those. We don't have that, that sound in the comic book. We don't have, that so so the the uh, action stuff so the murder balloons help us to make him more dominant in the scenes. If you're stuff, if you're if Spread's talking and Daphne's talking and and Shaggy's talking and Scooby doesn't, he kind of would disappear in the scene, and he, and he wouldn't be he wouldn't have a presence there. Yeah. So I did the word balloons sometimes to call attention to him because he's the star of the show, and the star has to be present in it. You know, you, you, you have to give pe- people who are picking up that comic book are not picking it up because they like Fred or even they like Shaggy. They're picking it up because, number one, they like Scooby. And if they don't like Scooby, they're not going to buy the book at all. So you got to give them to Scooby. Did Hanna-Barbera have any opinions on that? I don't think they even read them at the studio, uh, except that some of the writers were taking plots out of the comic book and pitching them to the shows. <laughs> and... Uh, that's what, that was one of the things that made me feel, gee, maybe I should be writing for the show. <laughs> I don't know if any of the actual episodes I did in the comic book got adapted into the shows, but when I started hanging around Hanna-Barbera, the studio, uh, a couple of my friends there told me, uh, one of the guys who was a story editor said, uh, oh, Mark, somebody just came in and pitched a whole bunch of Scooby-Doo ideas, and they were right out of your comic books. <laughs> so, so... Uh, but no, the studio management did not read the comic books by then. They read the earlier issues. But at that particular point, we were on our own. And I, don't, I never got any reaction. I'm really curious yeah. now to go back through those old issues and see if, any of, uh, if I recognize any of the stories as show stories. <laughs> I, I, I doubt any of, any of those reached fruition. But, you know, the, the problem the Scooby-Doo show had, and I'm sure you want to talk about this a little, is that it was on so long that, you know, you'd run into, it was hard to come up with ideas that hadn't done, yeah. been done. I went in one time, I, I may have the time frame on this wrong, and, and I think it was, I think Don Jurwich was producing the show, or maybe Ray Parker was supervising it. And they said, you know, come up with some ideas for episodes. So it kind of was like, here's an idea, we've done it. Here's an idea, we've done it. Here's an idea, oh, that was in season three. Here's an idea, but we're doing that story again right now. I mean, the, the first 10 ideas get shot down because they've done them, they've done them, they've done them. And like in the, uh, in the season of the season that Scrappy was introduced in, I wrote the pilot, the, the, the episode that introduced Scrappy. And I was doing other things at the time. They asked me to be a regular writer on the show. And I was, I had to cut something back. I had to say no to something. So I said, no, I'm not going to. They said, well, will you at least write a couple of stories, an episode or two? And I said, okay, fine. So I went in, and I think the story editor at that point was Dwayne Poole. Yes. And I said, you know, here's an idea. We've done it. Here's an idea. We've done it. Here's an idea. We've done it. And I said, how about a thing about uh, a haunted baseball diamond? 
and, she, and Dwayne like went, stop, went, wait a minute. And he goes over the list. They have these lists of all the stories that have been done. And he goes, baseball diamond, baseball, baseball. No, we've never done one. <laughs> and I really didn't have an idea at that point what the story was other than it was a haunted baseball stadium. But the minute they went, oh, my God, we've never done that, I had a sale. They were, you know, you know, because I'd done the hard part at that point, which was to come up with something, a new, a new setting, a new uh, kind of ghost, a new venue that set it apart from all the stories before it. So, you know, even if I couldn't come up with a, a plot that took place in a baseball stadium, they still wanted to do a baseball episode. So somebody else would come up with a plot. So I did, uh, I think it was called Demon of the Dugout. Yeah. So there was you know, sometimes in the second season or this in Scrappy's first season. And then I was going to do another one and then I got busy again and, and I forget what, but I had other, I, I was doing like, you know, four shows and <laughs> I, was doing, I was doing a lot of stuff at the time. So I just couldn't sit down and write up. And, and, and Scooby was not the best paying option I had. So, uh, in fact, I made more money writing for Ruby Spears at that time, writing cartoons, so it's a Ruby Spears, and I did write episodes of the Scooby. So I didn't write much more of Scooby at that point. In typical IMDb fashion, uh, that Demon of the Dugout episode is credited to Tom Swale, who, of course, was one of the story editors. Well, I, I wrote the... I, he probably did a good rewrite on it. At that point, because they had these gang credits yeah. on the episode, we didn't get too fussy about whose name was on the script. And so... I had it, and you know, the, the air out of the air, it didn't say written by Tom Swill or Mark Evanier, so we didn't care about that that much. But I, I wrote the, you know, I wrote the draft of Demon of the Dugout, and Dwayne and Tom, you know, did whatever rewrites were necessary. But I would say the IMDb listing is wrong on that one. Yeah, I've been encountering that a lot in like the research, and, and as I go through talking to people who've worked on the show, and they're like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> they'll list like six episodes, and they'll be like, oh, well, the, like... The, problem, the problem is there, there's no there's no place to really get some of those authoritatively. Hanna-Barbera was very sloppy with their own records. I mean, if, if two years later, somebody at Hanna-Barbera had had to ask who wrote this episode, the only thing to do, I think, might have been they'd have to go out to the warehouse and pull out the scripts from that season and see whose name was on the first page. They didn't keep records very well. Uh, a number of times, one of, one of the jobs I did for Hanna-Barbera a couple of times, which made me very proud, even though I didn't get paid for it, was uh, they would ask me to watch some of their old shows and identify the voice actors <laughs> because there were no records of who'd done, the, literally no records of who'd done the voices They'd lost whatever paperwork there was, and this union, Screen Actors Guild, was requiring them to pay some residuals. So they had to, in good faith, figure out who the voice actors were and pay them or their estates. So I would sit there and watch these episodes and say, oh, that's Paul Fries, oh, that's John Stevenson, whoever it was, and jot them down, and they would pay these people, uh, you know, each 14 cents or something. But the same thing, nobody cared about script credits since they weren't on the air and since they didn't trigger at that point any residuals. Fair enough. So going back to the comics, you were at Gold Key and then uh, what happened between like Gold Key and Marvel, the transition there? Because you, you were working for Gold Key, but you eventually ended up with Hanna-Barbera, right? 
Well, here's what happened. Um, Golden Key was doing the Scooby-Doo comic books and also a, a couple of other Hanna-Barbera books. I think they were doing the Harlem Globetrotters and one or two others. They had, they had an Adams Family comic at one point. And uh, one of the ways that companies that owned characters made money, a lot of money because it was, it was, and it was like found money because it didn't, there was no investment necessary, was selling the reprint rights to pages overseas. Gold Key Western would pay, you know, Mark Hevenier and Dan Spiegel to draw a Scooby-Doo story, and then they'd publish it in America. And then Hanna-Barbera could take photostats of that story and sell them to Spain to reprint, and to France to reprint, and to Belgium to reprint, and to Mexico to reprint, and to Brazil to reprint. And every one of those countries paid a fee, and all of a sudden, having not had to expend really any money to do this, Hanna-Barbera was making all this money on the reprints, selling the reprint rights overseas. So somebody at Hanna-Barbera, I think I know who, but I don't remember the name for sure, decided, gee, we should, we should have more comic books out because the foreign publishers wanted to publish Flintstones comics, and there weren't any. And they wanted to publish Yogi Bear comics, but there weren't any. Western was not publishing a Yogi Bear comic. It was not publishing a Flintstones comic at that point. So the Hanna-Barbera guy who worked probably for a company called Taft Broadcasting, which was the parent company of Hanna-Barbera, went to, to Western Publishing and said, we want you to publish more comic books. We want a Flintstones comic. We want a Yogi comic. We want a Quick Draw McGraw comic. We want a Jetsons comic and so on. And Western Publishing was at that time having trouble getting their work on newsstands. Comic books were in big trouble in the early 70s because newsstands were just dying out across the country. There was more and more problem finding comic books to purchase. And you can't purchase material you can't find easily. You know, At one point, Gold Key Comics were literally not sold in New York State for a while. They couldn't get a distribution deal they wanted. So here's, you know, one of the biggest markets in, in the country, and there are no Gold Key comics for sale. You can imagine what that did for the, the overall circulation figures. And Gold Key said, we cannot add 10 new comics like you want. Uh, we just, they won't sell, we'll get killed. And, and, and the people at Hanna-Barbera at Taft Broadcasting wanted that to be done because they wanted all those pages that would be generated, they could sell overseas to the foreign publishers. So... Somebody made a liaison with Charlton Comics in Derby, Connecticut, which is a, uh, this is a, that's a very long circuitous story you don't want to hear. <laughs> and Charlton said, yes, well, we'll publish all those comics. So Charlton began to do the Hanna-Barbera comics, and they got the rights to Scooby-Doo when, when Gold Key's la rights lapsed. And they put out, instead of having like three Hanna-Barbera comics a month, like Gold Key was doing, there were suddenly about nine that Charlton began doing. Unfortunately, along the way, the Hanna-Barbera executive type people learned that there was a difference between having the Flintstones and Yogi Bear and Scooby-Doo and you know, Top Cat comic books drawn two miles away from the Hanna-Barbera studio by guys who'd worked on the TV show and were moonlighting and having them drawn in Derby, Connecticut across the country by people who'd never worked on the characters in animation and who were being paid the lowest rates in the industry. The budget for a Charlton issue of Scooby-Doo was probably like 
less than half of a, a gold key issue of Scooby-Doo. They paid the writers less, they paid the artists less, and the foreign publishers began to refuse to take any of that material. They just didn't want to buy it because they thought it looked ugly. So to try and bolster the volume of good material of Hanna-Barbera that was produced so it could be sold overseas, the Taft Broadcasting people canceled Charlton's deal at the first opportunity, and they set up a operation in the Hanna-Barbera studio to produce material, and the idea was that they would be done on a, on a higher quality than Charlton, and then the foreign publishers would buy the material and they'd reprint it overseas. So Chase Craig had retired. Chase had hit retirement age in Western Publishing. He'd retired, and he you know, was, was not working anymore, and they came to him and said, would you come out of retirement and edit a couple of comic books for us? And Chase said, okay, I'm not going to work full-time anymore, but I can, you know, I can go in a day or two a week and edit some comic books. So he began doing these comics, and at first, Hanna-Barbera tried to make a deal to publish them themselves to start a Hanna-Barbera comic book company, but then they discovered that the newsstand distribution was a, a closed entry. It was a, you know, it was a club you couldn't get into. Yeah. No, you could not get distribution. I went through something very similar with the Edgar Rice Burroughs company. For a while, I did foreign comics of Tarzan and Korak that were just for the overseas market. It was the same thing. Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated had taken the rights away from Gold Key because they wouldn't produce enough material. In this case, they gave it to DC. Uh, and, oh, for, and, this, and, and, they, and DC produced material that the foreign publishers found insufficient for their needs or wrong for their needs because they had redesigned Tarzan and redesigned Korak. So, so Edgar Rice Burroughs hired a bunch of us to do material for the overseas market that, that, that held to the old Gold Keys versions, and that was sold overseas. It was the same exact situation, oddly enough. So Hanna-Barbera found they couldn't start their own company, but the people at Marvel said, hey, we'll publish them. So the deal was made to publish uh, four bi-monthlies, Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, Yogi Bear, and Dynamut, and uh, Chase began to edit them and put them together, and that's where I came into the picture. <laughs> and he brought me in to do them. You want to hear a story? Yeah. I was working on sitcoms. Yeah, this is a very strange story. I was writing a TV show called Welcome Back, Cotter, which was the number one, one of the number one shows on ABC at the time. It was a hugely successful show, and it was a heck of a lot of work. I worked day and night. I knew, you wouldn't believe the hours we kept on that show and how hard it was. I used to have to, I used to not be able, I didn't have time to go to the laundromat and, and get my clothes washed. So at lunchtime, two or three days a week, I would run out to a department store near the studio and buy clean clothes <laughs> to wear to the office the next day. And when I finally left the show, I had enough underwear that I didn't have to buy any more underwear for about 15 years. <laughs> and I had like, you know, 150 pairs of underwear. So... I decided to leave the show, and this is uh, the story I'm telling you. This is an absolutely true story. You've got to believe me on this. I, nobody would make this up. I quit the show, and we had at the end of the season we had a wrap party, and it was at the end of the season. It was the end of the second season of the show, and there was a big party, and 
on the stage and everybody and people were eating and drinking and stuff. And my then girlfriend was a girl named Christine who was on the show sometimes as a classroom extra. That's where I met her. So we, you know, did the show. We worked on the show all night and we went to the party all night rather. And then we went back to my place for the night and I woke up in the morning and I had no job. I had quit. I had quit Connor and I had nothing else to do to write for money. So Christine says to me, you know, if you could have any job you want in the world, what would it be? And I said, Oh, that's, that's too big a thing. I can't figure out, you know, I can't answer that question. There's too many possibilities. He said, well, if you could get back any job you ever had in the past, well, which one, which one would you like? So at the time, you know, that I hadn't done so much that that was a hard question to ask. I said, to answer, I said, uh, I'd like to, you know, go back and do Scooby-Doo comic books if I could get anything. I did not, and I told her how I did these for this lovely man named Chase Gregg at Gold Key and a man named Dan Steele drew them. And she said, well, why don't you go see, call him up and see if you can get that job back. I said, because Chase Craig is retired. He's not there anymore. Um, and, and I thought, I didn't know about the Marvel deal or the Hanna-Barbera deal I, at all. I thought Chase was retired. And uh, Charlton has the rights. I didn't know it had been canceled. And uh, Dan Spiegel is not working for Charlton or anybody else I, for Gold Key right now. So there's no, I can't get, you know, I can't get Scooby-Doo comic books. I can't get Dan Spiegel. I can't get Chase Craig. So we went on to other topics like, you know, where was she going to get a job now? And about 15, 20 minutes later, so the phone rang and it was Chase Craig calling me. And Chase said, listen, Mark, I've come out of retirement. We're doing a new Scooby-Doo comic book. I'm editing out of the studio and Dan Spiegel is drawing it. And he asked if anyway, we could get you to write it. And I said, well, who's writing the other one? He told me he's doing these four comics. He said, uh, Flintstones, Dynamite, Yogi Bear, I don't have another writer yet. I just started this week. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, if you give me all four of them to write, I'll write, I'll write them. He said, you got them. You want to go to lunch today? So I had lunch that afternoon with, with Chase. And at 3 o'clock that afternoon, I'm sitting in my home office writing a Scooby-Doo comic book for Chase Craig that Dan Spiegel's going to draw. That is a true story. I swear to you, that's a true story. So I was unemployed for like, you know, four hours. <laughs> uh, and I wrote uh, they, the very first issue of the Marvel Scooby-Doo comic. They had already, Chase had already bought a script from a man named Bill Ziegler, who was mostly an artist. The first story in that first Scooby, Marvel Scooby-Doo, it's called, I, I, you know, Three Phantoms Too Many or yeah. One Phantom Too Many, whatever. It's the cover story. I didn't write that one. I wrote everything else in that comic. But Chase had, he had not thought he could get me because I was writing TV and he thought, well, once they're writing, you know, they're getting TV money, they're not going to want to work for comic book money. And so he had Bill Ziegler write a script and then he called Dan and said, um, you know, Bill Ziegler's writing this first script and Dan said, oh, why didn't you try to get Mark? <laughs> and here's his phone number, call him. And he called me and, you know, that's what happened. So I wrote the rest of them. And then Chase, at some point, decided to retire, and I took over running the Hanna-Barbera comic book division. He just gave it to me. And I took over. We did the last Olympics comic book. We did a book called Hanna-Barbera TV Stars. We did a book called Hanna-Barbera Spotlight. We did a bunch of tabloid Flintstones Christmas Party, Yogi Bear's Easter Parade. Yeah. And then we also did a hundreds of stories for the overseas market. All original? Yeah, we did all new stories. What happened was that that the overseas publishers were re rejoiced when they saw our Scooby-Doo stories and our Yogi Bear stories 
uh, after the, you know, they were not buying the Charlton's, but they were hiring their own local artists saying we can do better down here. So now they had, you know, they had our stories and they said, oh, can you give us some stories of uh, Squidly Diddly? Because they were running Squidly Diddly in some country. Because Hanna-Barbera sold the reruns to their shows all over the world at different times. So, you know, some country is now doing mumbly on, on TV and, and the publisher wants mumbly comic book stories. So we had a bunch of mumbly stories and somebody else is doing uh, uh, Mitor. Mitor is on TV in that country, so they wanted Mitor stories. And so I had this division that did hundreds of stories that were not published in this country. There were also Scooby-Doo stories because they wanted, they wanted six-page Scooby-Doo stories overseas. So we did, and, and now these, I didn't write the overseas ones. I edited them. I hired other writers for that. But Dan Spiegel drew about maybe 30 or 40 Scooby-Doo stories for the overseas publishing program. I didn't write any of those. And I just edited and produced those and hired the writers and artists. And we did that for a couple of years too, until that kind of petered out. But, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in, I had an office at Hanna-Barbera. I'm doing the comic books for them. And uh, I was going around the studio. Whenever I met somebody in the studio who worked on the TV shows, I'd say, hey, can I write the TV show? And they go, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I couldn't, I could not break through. Into the, into, the, into the TV show. So I, that was my frustrating thing for a while. And that concludes part one of my conversation with writer Mark Evanier. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did putting it together. I know I always say that, but it is always true. And I hope you'll join us for part two, where we talk a little bit more about getting into... Uh, Hanna-Barbera as a studio and working in animation and the of course eventual creation and execution of Scrappy-Doo which I know there's at least four of you out there who are just as interested in that as I am if you're interested in checking out more of Mark you can find him online he's got a blog www.newsfrommeme.com n-e-w-s-f-r-o-m-m-e dot com bit of a play on words news from mark evanier haha ha. uh, you can also catch him on twitter at evanier e-v-a-n-i-e-r and you could check out dozens and dozens of back issues of comic books that mark has written you can find them either in your back issue bins at your local comic shop which you can't technically go to right now if you're listening to this in the present day and not in the far distant future when the realities of covid quarantine are no longer a thing uh, but you could also find a lot of the stuff probably digitally through comiXology or various other uh, online delivery systems if you want more information or just to keep up with the podcast on social media you can check me out on facebook i'm also on instagram and twitter it's all basically uh, search a podcast named scooby-doo or at scooby-doo cast uh, there's also the blog, scoobydoocast.wordpress.com, where I will post uh, behind-the-scenes stuff from the interviews, uh, as well as the Apocalypse Variations, which are interviews, brief interviews that I do with artists who worked on variant covers or, or regular uh, covers for uh, Scooby Apocalypse over the course of its three-year run. Pretty much every issue had two covers 
and uh, some wonderful artists uh, worked on those, including uh, Joel Jones and John Boy Myers, who are the two that I currently have posted over there. And that's really all for me. I don't think, ah, not a pun. <laughs> that's all that I have for you. I don't want to take up too much more of your time because it's already been a while. So thank you so much for checking the show out. Follow, subscribe, share, all of those things with all of the social medias. If you know anybody else who might be interested in the show, be sure to let them know. Uh, pass it along. Word of mouth is a powerful, powerful thing. And uh, yeah, it would be a much darker, boring place without you guys out there downloading and checking out the show. So take care. We'll catch you next time on the podcast. And remember, you're dealing with Scrappy Doo now. Prepare to splat! appeared she flew around instilling fear exactly how she did was still unclear until we saw the broken flight rig of the balladeer whose name is Kyle! 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 The hammering balladeer! Kyle! Everybody cheer! This is how we solve the mystery This is how we solve the mystery So in summation this narration is my donation the art of mystery solving dictation and here's what the bad guys say when they play where the law forbids what a kind of way with it too if it wasn't for you meddling kids this is how we solve the mystery bye